following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. To the Larger of Life podcast. Uh, this is Pastor Matt Adams from First Pres in Dillon, South Carolina. I am on vacation, but committed to the calls of recording these episodes. And so we are gathered here with all of our uh, cohort of uh, teaching elders in the PCA, Sean Morse, Nick Bullock, Derek Bright, and Stephen Spinnenweber, who is also on vacation and wearing a glorious hat. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about this straw quick silver hat there spin i've i've been in beach mode so i've been in maryland these last two weeks and i'm fixing to go home on saturday but i've had everything from crab feast to just burning myself senselessly on the beach did the boardwalk got some thrashers fries all of the highlights of maryland i've managed to check those boxes in the space of this week but i'm not as cool as nick bullock because Homeboy was sending us pictures in the group chat of just, oh, I'm just vacationing in Switzerland as one does for these these men's retreats. Those act, I'm convinced that those weren't real pictures. I think that he just took Microsoft Office screensavers and then just used AI to convince us that they were real. Can you? I think so too. Yes, Nick. I think that's right. Switzerland. I think that's. I'm. I'm not even convinced that the kids in those pictures were actually his. I think he just found some cute kids from some lady on the street and said, "Hey, stand there for a second, put him in front of a green screen, and then you know, off he went." No, we definitely didn't hire the kids. I wish that were the case. They would have been much (laughs) better uh, behaved. Uh, Yeah, we were in the Swiss Alps for a week with our sister church out of Kaiserslautern. Uh, Two days ago, we were in Geneva, and I got to. uh, go and walk through with my boys and all the tourists looked at us in awe as we sang old hundredth so it was a great time one of your children sat in calvin's chair is that correct he did man he just took the rope down plopped up in there no one said a single word it was awesome and you left him in the jail cell in switzerland i bet (laughs) yeah yeah definitely geneva geneva isn't that that uh, that fictitious country in that movie with uh, Anne Hathaway from like 20 years ago? No, Geneva's that girl Derek used to date. Oh. <laughs> well, no, see, Derek, Derek's Derek. fancier than all of us. I'm pretty sure he was doing his sunset or his sunrise yoga routine because then he went immediately to the chiropractor today. I don't have a chiropractor, guys. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't have that Aliceville, Alabama call. So I don't have a chiropractor on speed dial. Uh, like Derek does chiropractor, well, massage therapist, <laughs> private long crew. You know, he has, yeah, his own I mean, shout out to Dr. Brett. Uh, he fixed me up today. I feel like a new man. So, um, Very good. otherwise I probably wouldn't have even been able to record today. My neck wouldn't have moved. So, well, I think it's time for us to, to jump in here. We're on question three, which reads, what is the word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. So, Sean, why don't you dive right in there? 
uh, and let's make all of our dispensational brothers mad and talk about the continuity between the Old and New Testaments uh, and why we consider both of the Testaments to be the authoritative and errant Word of God. Yeah, this is... And don't you love how the larger catechism... I mean, we mentioned this in some of our previous episodes, how uh, it could be that a Reformation-era creed or catechism might want to begin by discussing the Bible, the Scripture, the Word of God as a jumping-off point uh, to begin catechizing on the Christian faith. But the larger catechism does not do that. It begins with God, uh, chief and highest end of man. How does it appear that there is a God? But it doesn't waste a whole lot of time before it gets to the Word of God, which I think is very uh, pedagogical in of itself. It talks about God for two questions, um, how God reveals himself in nature, um, natural revelation, and even upon man's conscience, as we spoke about in our previous episode. But it doesn't it doesn't linger there before getting right in to this question on the Word of God, which I think is incredibly instructive. Uh, lest we be left to our fanciful imaginations about imagining uh, what God is like and what we should believe about him. Larger Catechism has 196 questions, and at number three, boom, what is the Word of God? And here's how you would know about him. And then in the follow-up questions just after that, uh, after hearing question three, it sets out what is the Word of God properly. Uh, and then in follow-up subsequent questions, uh, it will get more into the qualities of how we know it's the Word of God and what the subject matter of the Word of God is, and that'll be in subsequent episodes. So we'll we'll try it. We may we may cheat a little bit and dip our toes into some of those items in our discussion today. We'll try to restrain ourselves just to speaking about um, the the Word of God, uh, what it is uh, properly speaking. But as the question says, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God. So there you have it, setting it out plainly and straightforwardly, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those are the Word of God. Notice that the Apocrypha is wholly absent, and of course the the Westminster Confession of Faith makes that case as well, that those books are perfectly useful from an historical standpoint, uh, as an historical curiosity, perhaps even as a primary source, uh, better wrap our minds around what the religious beliefs or superstitions were of the people in that time period, but they are, uh, other than being useful in as much as uh, Plato and Socrates and the Roman uh, annals of history are useful as an historical artifact, uh, they are not to be elevated uh, to the level of Holy Scripture. That attribute, that quality uh, belongs alone to the books of the Old and the New Testaments. These are the word of God. And notice the only rule of faith and obedience. We may not want to jump into that right at this moment, but this is something we probably want to tease out as we get further along into our conversation. The only rule of faith, uh, that is what to believe, and obedience. Now, there's a dirty word in our day and age. Uh, not, not to be overly provocative here, but sometimes, even in Reformed circles, obedience, the concept of obedience, the word obey, gets a, gets a bad rep. Uh, as if that's some kind of legalism. Uh, and of course, put in the wrong place, uh, obedience can translate, if we, don't, if we don't parse it correctly, yes, it can translate into a kind of meritorious works righteousness, and we want to repudiate any kind of meritorious works righteousness. But properly situated in the Christian life and in the Christian faith, obedience is key. And so the Word of God is crucial for faith and obedience. That is, what should we believe? 
And then what should we do? What kind of life should we live as we live unto Christ? And that's what the Word of God is for, the only rule for it. Um, I have monologued here probably more than I should have, so let me open the floor to some of you other fellows. I think one of the things to say here is the historical background of this third question is the debate, or at least the discussion, maybe that's the better way to say it, amongst the Protestants, sort of in contradistinction with the Roman Catholics. Sean's already mentioned the Apocrypha, with the Roman Catholic Church having 73 books uh, in their canon. And so whenever the Protestants are coming to this, and now they're putting out a catechism for general consumption for the people in their churches, it's instructive that they do note the Old and the New Testament are the canonical books. Those are the things which bear up authority. And so this is really an instructive thing. And if you think on it as uh, the reality of, of those early Reformed churches, is that they have a people that came out of Roman Catholicism, came out of medieval Christianity, and are now coming into a more faithful and a Reformed church. Now they then know who to go to or where to go to uh, mm. for the authority for life and faith. Well, you know, one of the things that, um, since I grew up in a Pentecostal background, uh, the Church of God of Cleveland, Tennessee, one of the things that um, is so interesting to me is that there is a setting aside or a, a setting the foundation rather of both of the testaments being the the supernatural revelation the special revelation of who God is and how we ought to live um, I you know I vividly remember being a, an early teenager and, and wondering why don't we ever tackle uh you know, these books of the Old Testament or these verses of the Old Testament or even the stories of the heroes of the faith that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, why don't we, why don't we, why don't we preach from those? Why don't we study those? Why don't we learn from those? And, and it was as if there was a new God set aside in the, in the New Testament rather than this old covenant God uh, of the early books of the Bible, especially, you know, the Pentateuch. Um, and so one of the things that I love about the larger catechism in, in this regard is that from Genesis to Revelation, we have a full understanding of who God is and a full understanding of what he demands from his people uh, in faithfulness and uh, obedience. And so that's always uh, something that I, I, I really try to hone in on is that we do not survey a new God with new characteristics uh, as New Testament believers, but we have a God who has fully uh, revealed himself in as much as we need uh, for full faith and obedience uh, throughout the entirety of uh, the scriptures. Um, and so that's always a point that I like to bring up as well. Mm. And don't you, love, don't you love the straightforward way that the catechism puts it out there without... without Dying the death of a thousand qualifications without without equivocation, the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are are the Word of God. They don't contain the Word of God. They don't approximate the Word of God. They don't hang out with the Word of God. They are the Word of God. Um, I I dare say that Bardian or neo orthodox proclivities would not find a welcome home uh, with this assertion with this di didactic assertion from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And, you know, I'm not trying to pick on those, that, that camp unnecessarily, but just you know, we have listeners from, from wide swaths. I don't know if we have any active listeners that might 
come from the PCUSA denomination. But if you'll indulge me, a very brief anecdote. I grew up in the PCUSA in my high school years. Now, the church where I worshipped, where I was a member, the the minister, he was an Orthodox man, an evangelical man, a conservative man. I'm very thankful for that. But it was not uncommon that we'd be at, you know, joint services that we'd be sharing with other other congregations or something. And you'd have the person um, up in the pulpit getting ready to, to read the Bible, and they would say something along the lines of, listen for the Word of God. Listen for the Word of God. And that's something I always I always tell my, my students uh, is that, you know, if you're, how do you know that you're in a congregational or worship setting that may have been, that has been infiltrated by neo-Orthodox sensibilities? It's when you hear the person in the pulpit say, listen for the word of God, as opposed to listen to the word of God. It's as if to suggest the word of God is in there somewhere. You know, you're reading this long passage from Luke, and there's various things in there, different details, but, you know, not all of it would we want to say is God-breathed or from God's mouth, but it's in there somewhere. So just pay close attention, and hopefully it'll it'll jump out at you. Well, that kind of sensibility uh, would find no countenance here from this question number three of the larger catechism. And Sean, you know, it's it's one of those things I, I you know, I tell my congregation often we we don't have a word that is inspiring we have a word that's inspired um you know they they try to use some language that sounds familiar uh, but even within the conservative presbyterian circles an idea of a plain reading or a simple reading of uh the text of the scriptures um is looked upon as very narrow-minded um and ignorant and and so i think that it's you know, it's very fitting for us to, and I even think that Johannes Voss talks about this, that it's very fitting for us to pay attention to the plain reading here, the simple reading of the catechism that we have in our hands when we hold our Bibles, the Old New Testament, they are the very words of God. God breathed, uh, as the Apostle Paul tells his beloved Timothy uh, in Second Timothy 3. And so, you know, it's one of those things that we have to, we really have to drive home the fact that what we have in the Word of God is simply God's revelation, His special revelation, His supernatural revelation to His people. He desires to teach us about Himself first, uh, and then He desires to teach us how to live for His glory and our enjoyment second as we tie in the catechisms together here. Yeah, and I think that this has um, obviously great bearing on how we worship on the Lord's Day, right? So I, I know, you know, we don't want to jump too far ahead into the, the catechism, but so many of these are so um, connected, obviously. Um, but I think about larger catechism 155, which I, I quote a lot in my church, Um but it says the spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word and effectual means of um, enlightening and uh, convincing and so on and so forth. And we get that as reformed people. We go, yeah, the preaching of the word of God, you know, like second Helvetic confession, um, you know, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Right. And so we get that preaching is that means that the Lord uses um, by his Holy spirit to, um, to bring about, um, salvation, sanctification, and such. However, I love that it says the Spirit of God maketh the reading. It, you know, it's not just preaching, but just the mere reading of God's Word 
is a means of grace. And so connecting that back to our question today, question three, um, since we have this inspired and errant infallible word of God, then on the Lord's day, um, our services should be filled with God's word. Right. And I remember when I made the transition from a broad evangelical um, church uh, that was not did not have a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of scripture in the service. And when I made the transition from that going into the PCA, I was struck by the amount of uh, scriptures that were just read. You know, not just that there was a 45 minute exposition, but there was an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading. Um, you know, there was an assurance of pardon that was always scripture. Even the confession of sin had scripture in them. The call to worship obviously was scripture. The benediction typically was uh, scripture. I mean, I was really almost drowning in a sense my first time going into it because there's this view that the Westminster standards have that this is the very word of God himself. You know, there, there's that clever line that's been said a million times over, but um, you know, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him, you know, audibly, then, then read it out loud. And I love that in the sense that that's uh, there, there's truth to that. People are always searching for, well, I need a word from God. I need to hear from the Lord. Or what is God's will for my life in this way? Or what should I do here? Well, scripture is there for you to, to help you to, to reveal God's will to you for him to speak to you. And just the reading of the scripture itself um, is such a sanctifying thing when it gets down in your DNA, in your bones. And I'll, I'll make one more final uh, comment on this is that <clears throat> the scripture is so important and it's so necessary. It's so glorious. It's so beautiful. It's so all these things that the Lord Jesus himself memorized scripture. The very word of God himself memorized the word of God. That's why when you go to the temptation narratives, right, what is Jesus mm -hmm. doing in a battle against temptation? He's quoting scripture. Well, he didn't just pull that out of the air. Mm -hmm. That was deeply embedded into him. He had memorized that. He had spent time in the temple as a young child. He he knew the scriptures well. He was probably catechized by his mother, or, you know, that read the scriptures, um, you know, in the temple and taught the faith at home. <clears throat> And so here Jesus is quoting the scripture and how often were his answers so rich and filled with the Old Testament. Um, and and that, that's the thing. We've said it already, but we're Christians. We're two Testament Christians, mm -hmm. right? It's Old and New Testaments that are for us, that are useful. And Jesus is just so um, overflowing with Old Testament quotations. And if the Lord himself needed to memorize scripture and felt it was necessary to memorize scripture, then how much more ought to we be immersed in uh, the, the text? Yeah, that's a great point, Derek. I, I appreciated what you talked about uh, packing our services chock full of Bible. You know, when, when Nick was here visiting us at Oak Ridge a few months ago, I think he, he said something along those lines, Nick, you can, you can correct me if I misquote you, but you said, you know, when people say, what are your what are your worship services like there in in Germany? And you said something to the the effect of we try and describe it as we try to pack in as much Bible into one hour as is humanly possible. That's right. Yep. Yep. As much Bible in an hour as you can get. Yep. Yeah. I remember hearing a um a story that Mark Dever told, 
and he said that uh, he was preaching at a church that still had the stand where an hourglass would be placed. And he would explain to the congregation uh, that the, the hourglass, that was a gift from the congregation to the pastor. And after he preached for an hour, um, they may go up there and flip it and give him another hour to preach. And however many turns you got was a gift from the congregation. And some, he said that some lady popped up and said, uh, well, how much time did that leave for worship? You know, and of course we would say, well, listening to a sermon is worship. Right. But, um, but he said, you know, ma'am, you don't understand. Um, some of those people in that congregation could still smell the burning flesh from their grandparents or parents who died for the faith. And they knew that each turn of that hourglass may be their last. And so they wanted to get as much Bible as they could, as much of God's word as they could. Now it's you preach more than 30 minutes and people are thinking, oh, gosh, you know, when are you going to land the plane? You know, and you go, well, this may be the last thing you hear. And you need to consider that. Something I want to point our attention to, just so we don't skip over this, mm-hmm. is that the first thing the divines say about the Bible, the Word of God, is they call it holy. Yes. They call it holy. And that really is in, in distinction over and against just regular, secular, human-written books, that the Scriptures themselves bear up the essential character of God's holiness. This righteousness, this transcendent nature, this spotless nature you know they don't speak to the perfection of the scriptures outside of that four-letter word they don't speak to um uh, really very much of the character of of the the scriptures other than they are the word of god as well but to say that they're holy and that's such a huge thing something that we ought to be uh, people who keep keep this in view the bible's not a book on a shelf of uh, of books right uh it, it really is the book it is it's something that flows forth from God. It's theopneustos. Uh, and, and likewise, uh, it's not uh, its words are not just something to be casually played with. Uh, rather, they ought to penetrate us through. They ought to be life-giving. They ought to be convicting, convincing. Uh, they ought to do all of those things that God himself in his holy power normally does in the midst of his people and in the congregations of the church. Mm. Yeah, so did, did, thrown did, out did, you, did you hear what he called you just that? Theopanustos. Are you just going to sit there and take that? I'm going to take it like a man and <laughs> say thank you uh, for that. Well, I, as y'all are talking, you're, you're pulling on all the things that I noticed too. So I noticed three things that stood out to me when I read this question, that both testaments are the word of God and that there's no scaling. There's, hey, this is less so the word of God, the Old Testament, and the New Testament is more so the word of God, because when I read Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So while, as Calvin says, God taught the Old Testament saints by way of pictures, sort of how we teach our children with picture books, the types and shadows of the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats. The writer of Hebrews tells us that these were preparations and that these were instructive tools teaching the same content of the faith that you and I believe 
that's revealed to us more clearly in the pages of the New Testament. So both testaments, both covenants, both diatheikes, since we're just whipping out a little bit of Greek here. Oh, here we go. Look at us. Both testaments are equally authoritative and useful for life. They are both the word of God, which we call this plenary verbal inspiration. And we also believe in what's called organic inspiration. We do not believe that these people suddenly fell into a trance and that it was sort of like a weekend at Bernie situation where they're just sort of a passive pen and God writes the word. We believe that through the power of the spirit, they are guarded from error. But when you read Peter and you read Paul, they do not read identically. There is the same preservation from error. The same Holy Spirit is inspiring them both. But, and this is to a much lesser degree, in the same way that God uses the diversity of our voices to preach the same gospel in an exalted and a unique way that is inspiration by the Spirit, those holy men were carried along by the Spirit. And that's really good news because every word being God's word is trustworthy. We live in an era of fake news. We live, I mean, goodness gracious, artificial intelligence and not being able to know what is real from what is fake, I think is going to have lasting repercussions on generations to come. We don't know what truth is. You know, we used to think, oh, there's a timestamp, there's video evidence, this person's face. I mean, we're reconstructing and not even reconstructing, we're constructing new faces. Did y'all see, there was a recent article there was a woman, quote unquote, on Twitter that got 130,000 followers. And only later was it found that this was AI generated and completely fake. It was a bot. Hmm. So people don't know what to believe anymore. And so that we have a word from God is, is so encouraging. And it's the only rule. I loved that word. So Nick pointed out holy. The word that jumped out to me is that it is the only rule of faith and obedience. It's the only rule because as Derek said, it frees us from, I think, the burdensome yoke of personal preferences and doctrines and commandments of men. So my mind goes instantly to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, section two on the liberty of conscience. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship. So that God has revealed his will to us and it is not alloyed, it is pure, unadulterated truth. It's trustworthy and it's freeing because he has revealed to us very clearly what is pleasing to him. So we can respond to him in that thankful obedience and with that worshipful posture in the very manner that pleases him. That's great. That's great news. Uh, Spin, I'm glad you took the time to explain. So that's what artificial intelligence means. I just thought that was a reference to the intellectual prowess of the host of this show. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the things, Spin, that you just brought up uh, that needs to be mentioned uh, with, with, the, with the catechism saying the only rule of faith and uh, obedience. We have to understand that the scriptures are also sufficient for faith and obedience. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that there was a big Twitter storm 
regarding whether or not uh, the the scriptures were sufficient in teaching us how to raise our children per se or or to be godly husbands to know what our role is as a church within uh, a nation this idea of church and state and 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 the argument was that the scriptures were not sufficient for these things uh, that we needed other resources other sources of truth to speak into these avenues or these spheres of life and the catechism has no room for for that sort of understanding yes there's many good things out there that's been written that expounds and and summarizes and uh you know exposits scripture and scriptural truth but we always have to understand that the scriptures are on a pedestal elevated above all of those other things it's not a book amongst a bunch of books as mm-hmm. as nick said um even johannes voss he he speaks of the nature of the scriptures and the larger catechism uh in his commentary he says remember that the larger catechisms are subordinate to the scriptures it, it is a systematic summary of what the scriptures are teaching and so the scriptures are <clears throat> automatically elevated as the holy Word of God. Therefore, uh, because it is the only rule of faith and practice, we should come very reverently to the Word, uh, all filled or all full uh, when we come to the Word of God, prayerfully seeking that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and make application to it. Um, and so we, we have to understand that uh, the way that we handle the Word the way that we read the word is impacted by our understanding of what the word is. And the way that we even uh, obey the word is impacted by the way uh, that we understand what the scriptures are uh, as well. Um, as, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, a, a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. Your word does not bind me, uh, but it makes my paths wide. And, and in it, our uh, hearts should find much joy uh, because the Lord has taught us how to obey uh, and how to experience his blessings because we have obeyed uh, this this word that he has given to us. Well, two things to piggyback off what you just said. Well, one, piggybacking off and then two, uh, kind of seeing internal logic here, like um, people see Mary in their toast uh, mm-hmm. as far as the confession goes. But Matt, you're absolutely right. And for those that don't know, the Presbyterian Church in America, our constitution is the Westminster Standards, that's the Confession, Larger and Shorter Catechisms, and the BCO. The Bible is not a part of our Constitution for good reason, not because we have a lower view of the Bible, but because we can edit the BCO. We can edit even the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, though that's much more difficult. The Bible needs no editing. It needs no uh, emendation. And when you see people... Uh, we all learned this in seminary. For those of you that don't know what the documentary hypothesis is, we had rife higher critical theory that was uh, higher criticism that was uh, really, it was operative even in the formation of the PCA. That, that, that was one of the things that we were reacting against. And that was being taught in theological seminaries just 50 years ago that the Pentateuch was not written by Moses. It couldn't have been written by Moses because there's prophecies in there that came to pass like in real time. So 
you have to strip away those supernatural elements. And so they're actually the Yahweh, the Elohist, the priestly and the Deuteronomist, four different people that put together these five books of Moses. And you talk about eroding people's confidence in the scriptures and making much of the human element. We treat the Bible like supernaturalists, like it is a word from God, distinct and unique. And what I love about question three, two, I see a connection between question three, five, and the rest of the larger catechism. Because question three, notice it says the only rule of faith and obedience. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. And notice how obedience follows after faith. I think that ordering is significant because look at question five for a second. It asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, faith, and what duty God requires of man, obedience. And that actually sets up the structure for the larger catechism because we go into the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation, which is a sovereign work of God. And then beginning in question 91, we start expositing the Ten Commandments. So having learned what God's word teaches concerning himself and what he has done for sinners, only then do we move to the obedience. Because if you put the cart of obedience before the horse of faith and grace, we're in a whole world of hurt and trouble, right? Yep, that's exactly right. I know we're already at the half hour mark, but I think there's a few other threads here that are worth teasing out. Um, Matt has mentioned the Voss commentary. I've got the Voss commentary open as well. It, it's interesting looking at some of the things that he highlights. Uh, you, you can tell what controversies were swirling in his day. You know, he, he, he makes mention of the, the followers of Mary Baker Eddy and how the, the practitioners of Christian science violate some of these things. I mean, that's fine. That's good to know. I don't know about y'all. I haven't actually run into a practitioner of Christian science in over 10 years. Maybe I don't get out that much, but I just haven't bumped into one here recently. Uh, but he also makes mention of how the 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 friends or the Quakers and their their doctrine of the mystical inner light, how that violates this principle that's being talked about in the catechism. And again, I, I haven't bumped into any real live Quakers in my at least in my running around in 10 or more years. That's not to say though that that mentality is not predominant in our wider culture and society, even if a person isn't a Christian scientist or a member of the Quakers. This this notion of the inner light or, you know, the Jiminy Cricket principle, always let your conscience be your guide. Well, no, uh, because your conscience is flawed. Your conscience is tainted by sin. Your conscience is fallen, and it can only tell whether you're acting according to what you already presupposed to be right. You need the Holy Scriptures to correct that which you assume to be right or what you believe to be right, and that's why these things stand higher above it. Uh, so that might be a thread of conversation worth pursuing. The other thing that strikes me, uh, the way the Catechism is elevating Old and New Testament to both equally be the the revelation, the Holy Word of God. Um, I don't know about y'all, I don't know about our listeners, but I'm a I'm a big fan of the uh, drama, The West Wing, big fan of The West Wing. And there's a sentiment expressed there by the character who plays the president, Martin Sheen, who plays the president. And of course, this is 20 years old now. So I'm sure that that sentiment is even more rampant and egregious now uh, than it was then. But there's this, I forget the exact scene, but there's this argument happening uh, about what Christianity teaches, what the Bible teaches. And I think the character opposite the president is mentioning these verses from the, from the, 
the Old Testament. It, it may have been a, an argument about homosexuality, and they were quoting Leviticus or something. And then, you know, the, the president butts back and says, "Well, honestly, I'm more of a New Testament guy myself." Uh, that mentality is out there today in even more spades and, and worse. That, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, or I'm a red letter Christian. Or, well, I know that that's what Paul said in Ephesians, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus never spoke to that issue exactly. And folks, just as a quick aside, I know people have told me that um, they're looking forward to this resource. Some some folks are going to use it with their their teenagers, with their homeschoolers, um, with their as they're driving to to worship on Sunday or, or th- things like that. Uh, so, folks, uh, teens, kids, if you're out there and you're hearing somebody make those assertions. You be on your guard against that when someone tries to set the teachings of Paul over against the teachings of Jesus and to somehow say there are portions of the Bible that are more inspired or more holy, and there are portions of the Bible less inspired, less trustworthy, less holy. Uh, Don't believe that for a minute. And that is certainly not uh, the teaching here in the Catechism. That is certainly not the understanding of the Reformed tradition. We believe all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation— whether it was from Peter's pen or Moses' pen or Jesus' mouth or 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 an accounting from the chronicler, all of it is God-breathed, all of it is holy, all of it is inspired, all of it is entirely trustworthy and entirely to, entirely to be believed. So I don't want to get us too far down any sort of rabbit trails in those regards, but I thought it was worth highlighting. Well, if no, I it- just jump in real quick, hey. Hush, Matt. Okay, I will. I'll hush. <laughs> I was just going to say only Gen- Genesis to Revelation. We can't add to it either. That's right. We can't diminish parts of it, and we can't add to it either. So yeah. go ahead, Derek. Well, I've lost my train of thought now. No, no, I was just kidding. Uh, I was just going to say if you look at the authors of scriptures, the the scriptures themselves, the view that they had of the scripture is so very high. You know, and it's one thing to say, well, Paul wrote scripture. Uh, yes, he did. But in writing scripture, what did he use? Uh, he used, uh, he repeated a lot of old Testament, um, verses, yes. uh, like the Psalms or, or whatever the case is. And, um, in fact, I have a student right now who's writing a paper on Paul's use of the Psalms to, um, uh, explain his view of righteousness and, and justification, you know, and, um, but you think about, a text like first Corinthians 10, where Paul is using the Exodus narrative uh, and the wilderness to give application to the new Testament church today. You know, he clearly did not see um, that uh, those events that happened under the old covenant to be um, irrelevant for new Testament Gentiles. In fact, they he even says our father's, died in the wilderness and who is he writing to he's writing to a new testament church that has not only jew but also gentile in it and he's saying our fathers died in the wilderness whose father ours and so mm-hmm. um we come from that lineage and so it's important to not only just know the history of the old testament but to realize the old testament speaks to us because it is god's word even to us today you know, to piggyback on something Sean was touching uh, or mentioned to us earlier, and that is uh, the the relevance of the Bible today and, and how this speaks to it. And, and I, I do think it speaks to the existential challenge of our age, really, and that is identity uh, broadly amongst young people and people uh, throughout lots of points of life. Uh, they're asking the simple question, who am I? How can I know 
uh, what I am uh, or who I'm intended to be. And often that, you know, it touches on gender, it touches on sexual orientation and, and many other things. And there's a broad rejection, I think, by society of the usefulness of Scripture. And a couple points of uh, of criticism that they bring to it to just reject and eject Scripture and its relevance to their lives. Uh, one of them is chronological distance. What does an ancient book have to say about me? Really, it's, it's just a book. It's an ancient book with an ancient people. They're not like me. Uh, how can it speak uh, to the struggle that I'm feeling? And so where do people turn? Well, they turn to society, quite obviously, with all the pressure mm -hmm. uh, of, of societal norms and cultural uh, distinctives, but likewise, all of the assault of, of modern politics to tell you left, right, up, down, blue, red, uh, about who you are, who you're supposed to be. Uh, but I, I would say just as, as equal to that as people regarding their faith and obedience or even their own existential understanding of themselves, uh, they rely on inner feeling and certainly desire. And I think that this word here in the second part of question or answer number three, uh, that it is the only rule of faith and obedience. It narrows the field of view uh, for our young people and, and really for all people. Where do you go when you need to know about yourself? Well, it doesn't say go and trust your inner feeling or you know a, a soft, quiet voice. It doesn't point you towards the spirit of the age. Rather, it points you to the voice of God, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Excellent point. Excellent point. And, and Derek, as well, what you, what you were saying just a moment earlier, what a great reminder that is, that, is that all of the scriptures are ours. Those were our fathers in the wilderness. We are a covenant. There's, there's a continuity amongst the covenant people of God. The New Testament scriptures belong to the church. The Old Testament scriptures belong to the church. This is the church's Bible, the Bible that was the Bible of Jesus, the Bible, the scriptures that were the scriptures of the apostles are our scriptures too. Old and New Testament, the holy scriptures, the word of God. And that's the King James version only, right? I mean, if the king got, ain't on it, the king ain't in it. The king ain't in it. I mean, that's that's the that's the tagline of this show, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> as a as a quick joke and anecdote, and it really is quick. Back in back in college, one of our professors told us this story of, of a fella making making the case for King James onlyism. And I tell you, in the argument he made, and he was being utterly serious. He wasn't being silly or ironic. He said, Well, professor, when Paul quotes the Old Testament in his writings. What version does he quote from? Well, he quotes from the King James. When he's when he's reading his King James New Testament, Paul's yeah. quoting from the King James in the Old Testament. So yeah. uh, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me, fellas. I have been told that in serious fashion. So <laughs> uh, as someone who loves the authorized version very much. And, I was going to uh, say and that if all of us here on the show are are who love the beauty and the eloquence and the elegance of the King James version. That's not a knock against it, but yeah, yeah my church uses the new American standard, but I all my private reading and, and everything is all King James. So is that uh, based on the, the Texas that you sent us the Texas you sent us? That's what, that's what that's called, right? Wow. Oh, man, <laughs> we're deteriorating now. <laughs> well, guys, I was, worried for all of 12 seconds that such a short question would not yield a lengthy enough discussion or a fruitful enough discussion to produce an episode. But once again, I was proven wrong, and I'm glad for it. Uh, we've had over 40 minutes of quality discussion on this wonderful third question from the larger catechism. So it's been enjoyable for, for me. 
I trust it's been enjoyable for all of us here in the show and, and profitable and edifying. And I hope that it is profitable and edifying to all of you who listen to this later on. So on behalf of all the all the fellows here, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for studying along this catechism with us. We've just been through larger catechism question number three, and we look forward to being with you again next time when we take on question number four. Until then, this is Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.